0: All right, well, this morning we will continue to look at the early days of the first church plant. We are a church plant, and we get to learn about the first church plant. We've been working through the book of Acts, and we have arrived at chapter 4. If you want to look in your Bible, it will also be on the screen in your Bible or your smartphone up to you. But we will be in Acts chapter 4 today. Last time we learned some principles of evangelism from Peter and John who healed a lame beggar on the way into the temple. And we took note that this man not only was healed, but he believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved that day, and he joined the mission team right there on the spot with all the enthusiasm and excitement that comes with a, uh, the moment of understanding that who Jesus is and the salvation that comes from that. So he was both healed in body and saved in spirit, this man, and he became an enthusiastic messenger uh, right there with Jesus, uh, for Jesus along with Peter and John because of this man's testimony, something amazing happened. Actually, Peter was drawing attention to this testimony, and and, and possibly a couple thousand people were saved that day. A bunch of people were saved that day. They turned to Jesus because of this man's testimony. But as we will see, the bigger the impact of the church, as people were being saved and, and amazing things were happening, The bigger the impact of the church, the more opposition rises up. Hear me say that. Remember it for our future. Remember I said that. I remember when Pastor Mark said that in that little black room back then. The bigger the impact of the church, the more opposition rises up against it. Our story turns a corner this morning, and we will hear about the birth pangs of what became the great persecution of the church. I'm going to read through all of chapter 4. It's, it's lengthy, but I want us to get the whole backdrop because this is going to be a two-part message today and next week, and it's all based from this story. And so I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'll pause here and there and explain a couple things, and then we'll go back and, and look at it more in depth. So take note two parts. I'm not going to try to cover all this today, so don't get scared as I read. As they, talking about Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard of the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail, until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, before I continue, understand that the Roman government had given the Sadducees and their temple guards legal authority over the temple area and all religious matters. This would have been this, these would have been the same temple guards who arrested Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Peter and John had seen these guys before. They the ones that took Jesus away, and he wound up being crucified. These are the same guys. That's the kind of power they had. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so at this point, possibly just days after Pentecost, there were already 5,000 households, perhaps 15,000 people who would place their trust in Christ, thereby becoming part of the church. I think this is worth noting that the church in Jerusalem consisted of about 5,000 households before, uh, before the persecution led to the dispersion. And so those who would decry and denounce all large churches, you know, those evil megachurches, they, they may want to uh, consider the church in Jerusalem had about 15,000 people at one point, okay? Verse 5, on the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Keep in mind, these were the exact same people who would condemn Jesus to death. Same players. Verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, got the gospel in there, didn't he? I love that got the gospel in there by this name this man stands here before you in good health he is the stone which was rejected by you the builders but which became the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus now we're we're not going to voc- focus on verse thirteen there, but one, but I want to stop for a second and say that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because you see there that the most important thing, even though I'm I'm educated, overeducated, really, uh, this is that's not what matters. We see that here. It can help a little, I guess. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, but if you look here, you see that it wasn't about their training or education. They were amazed by what by what God was doing through them. And they recognized it wasn't because of any training or education or how great they were. It was because they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. See, the same is true for us. People know. People know when we've been with Jesus. Bevan, you've got an education. They know when you've been with Jesus and when you're just relying on your education. (laughs) Same with me. You know, And so you may not be formally trained or educated in Scripture. You may feel like you're not all that adept with Scripture. You don't know it as well as you would like. But if you learn how to walk with Christ daily, people will take note. People will be ready to follow you. You'll be a person of impact, and you can make a difference if you walk with Jesus. That's what's important. Going on, verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now get ready for this. The people of the early churches, our church are going to praise God. They're going to praise God. What are they going to do when their best leaders and their strongest leaders are, are persecuted in this way, when they know persecution is coming? What do they do? They praise God. They turn to Him. They turn away from the problems and the stuff to be afraid of, and they turn and they praise God in the light of serious opposition and, and, and life-threatening oppression from the government. Remember, these same religious leaders had put Christ to death just over a month ago. I'm pretty sure that that's even more than making them wear masks or whatever it was. Put them to death. These, these officials had power and their threats had teeth. But because the people of the newly born church were walking in the spirit, they responded to this oppression with worship. And with a, with a congregational prayer, not for deliverance, not that God would fix it, but for what? Boldness. For more boldness to, to do God's will in the middle of it. Verse 24, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. As if to say, so, you know, what else matters? Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and sign and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness.
1: Hmm.
0: By the way, it's interesting. I just, this is just the next part. This is just the next thing in the series I'm doing. I've been preaching through Acts, it's just where we're at. A lot of things that pop out of there for me, I don't know about you. Do you ever try to imagine what it would have been like to be one of them? To have been a part of the very first church? I do. What a privilege it would have been to, to be among the first, even in spite of the persecution they were about to face. How awesome it would have been to experience such a powerful move of God, to be so perfectly on track, you know, so about the kingdom. Unshakable in boldness, even as some of their leaders and members were being arrested and killed. This leads us to ask the question, can we in the modern church ever hope to be as bold and unshakable as they were. Can we respond to such persecution with praise? Can we experience this kind of spirit-led, Christ-centered, mission-accomplishing power today? I believe we can. And when I look at the challenges that we face as the church in this culture, I believe we must. We need what they had. Amen? Amen. But for this to happen, we're going to have to take the lens off of ourselves and place it on Christ. We will never be the church that they were, the church of acts, if we are focused mostly on ourselves and our problems, our problems, the world's problems. So many problems at least part of the reason for their power was their perspective see they were all about serving honoring glorifying and representing Jesus in the middle of the problems they were not about what they could get out of church and really they were not even about fixing the world mostly no they were about representing and glorifying Jesus Christ together in the world let me dig into this passage and show you more of what i mean looking closer we can see just how christ-centered the early church was and specifically there are five truths about the centrality of christ in the church that we can learn from this passage we'll cover the first two today and the last three next week for our first two sundays back together It's really interesting that God would have orchestrated things so that what we're going to do for our first two Sundays back together is talk about the Christ-centered church. Anybody else think we need to center a little bit around here on Christ? Right here it is from the book of Acts, and we'll seek to learn from their example. The first principle is simply this. Christ is the foundation of the church. Christ is the foundation of the church. Verse 11, Peter said, Christ is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. It's particularly interesting that Peter made this statement because Jesus had said something similar to Peter, hadn't he? Let's look back at that often misunderstood scene. It's recorded in Matthew 16. Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ." the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus was fond of teaching multifaceted truth by using words that can go in different directions. Why? Because he was a rabbi. That's what rabbis did. He was a master teacher, and that is what great teachers do. They milk language for all it's worth. They say things that can be studied over and over and looked at from different angles to see different facets. They love the truth, and they present it in such a way that like a diamond, all the facets can only be seen with a closer look. And so on the one hand, Jesus meant to say that Peter was going to be a rock for the church, And in fact, as we have read, it was Peter who preached the first sermon after which thousands were saved. Peter clearly functioned as the lead pastor for the original church. Uh, It is true that no one human being was more foundational to the beginnings of the church than the rock, Petros, Peter. On the other hand, I cannot agree with some who interpret the words of Christ to literally mean that Peter himself is the foundation, would be the foundation of the church. When Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, I believe it was mostly specifically referring to the kind of faith that Peter had just demonstrated in that scene. On this rock, this rock that you just demonstrated, Peter, on the rock of this kind of faith that you were the first to articulate. That's what I'll build my church on. And what faith is that? Well, look at it. Peter verbalized his own personal faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. So simple. Uh, it's one of those irreducible minimums. This is what it means put your faith in Christ, to trust that he's the Savior, the Messiah, your Savior, Son of the living God. This particular faith in Christ is undoubtedly the foundational truth of the church. Listen, every single person becomes a part of the church by trusting in the identity and work of Christ. This is how people are added to the church, by faith in Christ. And Peter was the first, he was the very first to profess so clear a faith in Jesus Christ. Because of this, he, he was the first member of the church, and in that sense was the foundational church member. Are you seeing the different facets of, of this diamond of the truth as stated by Jesus? So again, while Peter certainly played a foundational role in the church, and while he was foundational in that he was the first to articulate faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he was not the literal foundation of the church, as if the church could be founded upon a fallible human being. Peter may have been a rock, but he was not the rock upon which the church was built. He himself makes it clear, as recorded in our text today, that in terms of a person, it is Christ who is the foundation of the church. You can see there in Acts four eleven. It was Peter himself who testified before this council that Christ, not Peter, not me, he said, but it's Christ that is the chief cornerstone. Now let's move on to what this actually means for us. Why is this important? Well for starters this is important because Peter is dead. Right? (laughs) By contrast Jesus was bodily resurrected on the third day. Jesus is still physically alive and he sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit to be with us now even right here in this place. Let me be very clear that the apostle Peter is not here today. He is not with us, even in spirit. He's not present, but Jesus Christ is absolutely present in His church right now. Let's look even closer. Think about this phrase that Peter employs, calling Christ the chief cornerstone. It's a quotation of Old Testament scripture. Peter calls to memory one of the many verses, many many, one of the many prophecies about the Christ from Psalm one eighteen where it says, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. It's just so interesting. The psalmist didn't, I don't even think the psalmist knew exactly what he was talking about. He's like, you know, you wouldn't ever say this about God. I don't think, you know, he he didn't, he knows there's, there's something. It's just God, inspiration of God. You have become my salvation. The stone, which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. Hundreds of years after this prophecy, Christ was rejected by those who had overseen the building of that particular temple where they're standing, where Peter's talking. They were the builders. they had overseen the building of Herod's temple. And here they were, and and Peter's saying, hey, you rejected the real foundation. You rejected the cornerstone of someone who was going to be something. He's gonna be the foundation of something new and better so this is one of hundreds of ways that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. Peter says, hey folks, just so you know, the psalmist was talking about Jesus and he was talking about you and the so-called builders who rejected the one who is now the foundation of something better than this temple, something called the church. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified is now our salvation, just as the psalmist had predicted. Now here's the imagery. In ancient architecture, they would begin construction with a large perfectly cut stone placed at one of the corners of the building the stone became the standard by which all of the rest of the building of the foundation was measured you follow me it was the, it was the it was the measuring stone it was the beginning of everything else was in relation to it it was as perfect as possible it needed to be perfectly placed it needed to be precisely square and absolutely level, because everything else would be constructed in relation to it. Everything else would be measured, leveled, and lined up with the cornerstone. That's how they built from the ground up, starting with the chief cornerstone. Anyone who's done anything with building or construction knows how initial errors tend to be compounded over space and time. Right before we left Missouri, I finished our basement. Um was the third basement that I finished. The other two were embarrassing. The third one, I might have done okay. So we finished it right before we left Missouri, uh, Right, uh, and so I never got to enjoy it, but that's okay. But I was reminded during that time, if you're a quarter of an inch off or a sixteenth of an inch off on your piece of drywall, then three pieces over, you know, you're going to be like a, a quarter or a half inch off. You know, it's just compounded. Think about that in relation to the foundation of your house. Everything else is based on the foundation. If the foundation is off just a little bit, by the time you get to the shingles, you're probably looking at another leaning tower of Pisa. Okay. In American architecture, it's not so long ago that everybody knew what a chief cornerstone was, that first cornerstone. You can go to older parts of any town, the brick buildings, the stone buildings, and find that that chief cornerstone, usually with a little engraving about the date that it was put up. Especially older churches will have that, and they would have had a celebration when they placed that first cornerstone. Why? Because it was first. Because it was foundational. It was chief because it was foundational to the rest of the building. Everything else was built in relation to it. So let me put it this way. The chief cornerstone is the foundation of the foundation. It's kind of like if, if I mentioned earlier, you know, Jesus kind of indicated that the faith that Peter had, that faith in him and who he was, was really the foundation. That's the rock that the church was going to be built on. But we also know that Christ is the foundation. It's sort of like Christ is the cornerstone and then there's the foundation. Christ is the foundation of the foundation. That's who our faith is in. So as we rem- remember this, that the chief cornerstone is the foundation of the foundation, remember that a church is People not a building. That means that the chief cornerstone of the church needs to be a literally perfect person. There's only one. His name is Jesus. But I still haven't quite gotten to the practical application of this. What does it really mean for us that Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone? That foundation of our foundation. Well, it means we have something to build on that is completely reliable It means that we are a building, uh, that that what we're building here is not something that will eventually crumble. Not like a, a regular building. It's not like something that could be demolished. It's built on Jesus. It's built on a person. It's built on a perfect person. It means a virus has no effect. It means that the government can't tear it down. It means that even if we are a smaller church today than we were before all of this happened, uh, we could start over. If we had to, if we had nothing left, we, we, we 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 can never have nothing left. We always have Jesus as the foundation. He's a foundation that can never be destroyed no matter what else happens. More than all of that, with Christ as our foundation, we who are the church can be built up into something that will glorify God that isn't a leaning tower of Pisa or some kind of fallen down shack. We have the chance, we have the opportunity to glorify God because of our foundation. In spite of all the difficult challenges the church is facing in our world today, with Christ as our foundation, the church, which is you and me, can still hope to be the masterpiece of living architecture that God has in mind, our work, done with Christ as the foundation, stands forever as a memorial to him. Forever will always be remem- remembered by God. In his first letter to the churches, Peter the Rock later wrote these words, and coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also. You know what Christian really means, little Christ? He's a living stone. He says, you also the building. And hear me clearly, this school or wherever else we may gather is not the building Peter is talking about. You are the building. You're God's building. We're living stones. We're the church of Jesus Christ, who is the church? Those who have placed their faith in him, those who have him as their foundation, those for whom he is the chief cornerstone. And we are being built up together by God into something that has precious eternal value in his sight. Let me ask you a question, where do you find your identity? A lot of possible answers to that. What comes to mind, where do you find your identity? What makes you feel like you matter? What do you think about when you're reminded of the brevity of your life? What do you do when the the, the feeling of utter significance and come over us as we think about the vastness of the universe or how many billion people have already passed through history? Where do you find your identity? Why not find it in the fact that you are a precious piece of living architecture being built into the eternal temple and a building for God? You're a feature of his living temple Built up to stand eternally for the glory of God. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you are now part of his true church. That means you're his bride. His body, a child of God, his plans are to make you beautiful and pure and holy and and eternally resplendent. Eternally light-giving You're the building of God and you're being built upon the firm foundation of faith in Jesus Christ in whom there's no shadow or shifting sand. You have nothing to fear because you cannot be cast aside. You're like a precious stone in the hands of God and he's got a place to put you in his design and it won't be the same without you. He has a place to put you. You're you're a beautiful stone in his hand being built on a solid rock. There's Jesus. He's so solid. He's so perfect. So powerful. He's not going to ever let you completely fall away. Ever. He's got you. If you've trusted Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 also affirms this truth. Paul says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus and himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, the application here is all about your identity. You're not strangers or aliens to God. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're of God's household, You're being built upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus himself. You're being fitted together into something that is like a living temple for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. If you've trusted in Christ, this is who you are. You're the church. You're being built upon the perfect foundation of Christ. But I have one other point of application under this heading of Christ as the foundation. I think you're going to find it to be relevant. Where are you looking for truth? Where can you hope to find the truth? What is true? Pilate asked Jesus. He was standing right in front of him. What is your foundation for truth? How do you know what is right and wrong in all of this stuff? How do you know the appropriate response to racism? How do you know the appropriate response to rioting and lawlessness? How do you know the appropriate response to government oppression? Get serious with me now. Look within. To whom have you been listening? Whose example are you following? Let me tell you, some people are more right than others. But none of them are completely right. There's only one person who should define your truth. His name is Jesus. What was his response to those who were oppressed? mistreated because of race or class? What was his response to government? What was his response to violence and lawlessness? We don't have to guess. I would recommend you spend more time in the Gospels where you can be vaccinated (laughs) against the sweet-sounding lies of our time which are much more destructive than viruses. (laughs) And Before you think I'm talking to somebody on the other side, I'm talking to both sides of every issue. You are what you read and what you take in. I can tell what you've been listening to by what you post. You might say the same of me. (laughs) There is more propaganda readily available today than what Marx or Lenin were able to push on their populations. The difference is that now people are doing it voluntarily 24-7. Sometimes we even pay to read it or watch it. Go back to your foundation, believer. Go back to your foundation. Go back to what Jesus did and what he said and who he was. You're the church, right? Do you know Jesus? You're the church. He's the only firm foundation for you. Now, the second truth can be seen in verse 12 of our text. Acts 4, verse 12 tells us this. Christ is our only hope for salvation. Peter continues in verse 12. And there is salvation in how many other people? No one else. For there is no other name. That's that's, that's some exclusive language right there. It's very exclusive. No other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one foundation. That's precisely because there's only one source of salvation. Our culture hates it. And we state this truth and tried to make us look bigoted or at least arrogant in something that is an absolutely necessary core Christian belief. If you don't believe Jesus is your only hope for salvation, you don't believe in the real Jesus. Listen, you cannot possibly believe that Yahweh God went to the lengths of becoming a human, coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on a cross and rising again as one potential option. for humanity. That would be irrational. You either don't really believe it happened or you don't really believe Jesus was holy God in the flesh. Either way, you don't have saving faith. We can either believe what the Bible says is true or we're just still making up our own story. Either God revealed himself and his plan or we're still guessing. The Bible is extremely clear that there's only one way into heaven through Christ. We just read one of many verses to that effect, Acts 4.12. There is no other name. Why is this important? Why is our belief in the exclusivity of Christ so important? It's, the, it's important today for the same reason it was important in that day. I mean, think about it. Why did Peter say this? Why was he so clear? Why did he say there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved? He said it because from the very beginning people wanted to straddle fences. People wanted to believe good things about Jesus without believing he was God in the flesh. That's hard to believe without believing he was the Messiah, the only hope, the only hope for every last human being who's ever lived. People have always wanted to take the edge off. We have cults because they wanted to take the edge off. But as soon as they do, they've dulled the truth into a lie. We're not doing anyone any favors by trying to be open to the possibility that maybe there could be some other way to get to heaven. Again, we can learn this from the early church. Here they were talking to Jews who thought they were good to go. Because they were Jews, after all. They were God's chosen people. They even tried to keep God's law in a way that no other people on earth were trying to do. Those in Peter's audience that day were gathered at the temple to worship God, even as he spoke. <clears throat> excuse me. And what did he tell them? These people, these are, they're gathered at the temple to worship Yahweh, the one true God, the right God. What does Peter say to them? He told them they were hopeless without Jesus. If there were any other way into heaven, they were the ones that were going to find it. And yet Peter's talking to them, these devout God-fearers, when he says there's no other way to be saved, only by faith in Jesus, the one that you crucified. I think it's hard for our culture to hear. Think of these Jewish people to whom Peter was talking. They had the Old Testament promises. They had faith in God. They were children of Abraham. They had the sacrificial system. And yet Peter here and later virtually every New Testament writer made it abundantly clear saying, hey, the old covenant, all that stuff is fulfilled in the new and the new is a person named Jesus. Turn away from all of it and trust in him or perish like the pagans, period. I mean, that was the message of the New Testament church. Peter's message to the Jews is as simple as that. If that was their message to the Jews, what would their message be uh, to, what was it to Gentiles who worshiped a pantheon of of gods, false gods? What would be their message to our lost world today? What should be our message? I'm kind of thinking it would be the same. Well, think about it like this. If Jesus is a way, how in the world could there be some other way? If the God who created us out of dirt took on flesh and blood in order to die a torturous death so that we could be forgiven of our sins against him, does it really make sense to think he would allow some lesser path to suffice? To lead to the same place? And if Yahweh, God of the universe, really came and died out of love for you, Is it it that hard to understand why rejecting or ignoring that indescribable gift would result in his wrath? Logically, Jesus is either the only way to God or he was not who he said he was and therefore is no way at all. One thing is clear in our text. The early church believed that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. We must continue to teach this as well for the sake of all who might hear our message. Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. Anything else is a placebo. There's only one cure. This message is to be continued next week should the Lord tarry. (laughs) And we actually make it back here together. We will... uh, Cover three more principles around the fact that Christ must be the center of His church. I've been asked before, what is the biggest problem in the church today? I could spout off a few things, but this might be the biggest. Christ is not the center. One wonders sometimes how many so called churches are not even His, their lampstand has been removed. You know, nothing terrifies me more than the thought that we could become so centered on ourselves or perhaps on the issues and problems of man that we would cease to truly be his church. I call on you now, people of Go Church. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Put your eyes back on Jesus. This is what I've been hearing from the Lord in the last several days. This is where I need to go go with me. Let whatever you do and say in this world flow from your walk, not from someone else's talk. And not from whatever was the last thing you read, unless it was the gospel. <laughs> Next week we'll finish this out. You won't want to miss the other 3 points because it's very relevant stuff including some thoughts on our response to government overreach. It just happens to be there. In Acts 4 We will look at that in a balanced way. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, I know in the room today are mostly those who have put their trust in Christ, but there very well could be someone here who's never really done that. And so right now, Lord, I pray that someone would take this moment as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed to just simply Maybe you've, maybe you've moved today. I, I don't lead anyone to be saved, but maybe your Holy Spirit's moved in someone's heart. Maybe all the things that are going on in the world drove somebody into this building today. Maybe they're seeking. Maybe you're working. I don't want to leave them not knowing what to do. Lord, your word tells us that if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that He was who he said he was, that he died on the cross and rose again, we'll believe in that, if we'll put our trust in that, that you'll save us. And so, Lord, even as we're in this attitude of prayer, maybe somebody right now just wants to say yes to Jesus today. Just turn from everything else. Turn from your questions. Turn from what you don't know yet. Turn from thinking your sin is no big deal. Turn from your own self-righteous efforts to be good enough. Turn from everything and turn to Christ. Just say, I, I surrender. I don't know what else to do. I need Jesus. I need to be saved today. Let today be your spiritual birthday. All you got to do is tell him. He's waiting. He's there. His, hands are, his arms are wide open. Maybe knocking on your heart, saying, I just, "I just let me into your life. Surrender to me. Let me be your Savior. Would you say yes today by faith? Lord, for the rest of us, we, uh, we, need to, we need to turn our eyes back on Jesus. We need the noise, Lord, the noise level has been so, so loud. I don't know what you'll do when we do that. You may lead us to act. It's not a, it's not a passivity I'm calling for, but we need to turn our eyes back to Jesus. We need to hear what you're saying, not what everybody else is saying Answer our prayer, Lord. Help us turn our eyes on you.
1: Let's, Let's just sing that prayer together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sing it with me one more time. Pray it to him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, help us do that this week. In Jesus'
0: name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.